You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry. And before we jump into this week's interview, let's talk about our sponsors, MailChimp, Hover, and Creative Market. MailChimp is the premier email service provider choice for entrepreneurs and small businesses. Join more than 7 million people who use MailChimp to design and send 500 million emails every day. MailChimp just wrote a really great post on their blog about their MailChimp experts. Uh, The MailChimp experts are entrepreneurs and other small businesses that can help you get set up with MailChimp, design a template, and do other tasks. And just for full disclosure, 318 Media, of which I am creative principal, is a MailChimp expert. So if you're thinking about trying to get signed up with them, sign up for your free account at MailChimp.com. Need a new domain for your next project? Check out Hover. Each domain comes with free private domain registration, unlimited domain forwarding, and world-class customer support. Grab yourself a domain today and use the promo code JUNEBUG and save 10% off your purchase. Creative Market sells graphics, photos, fonts, themes, and a whole lot more starting at only $2. They give away a new selection of free goods every Monday, today is Monday, and they've got great bundle promotions every month. Have you purchased something from Creative Market and used it in a project? Now you should submit your work to Made with Creative Market, which is a showcase that they have of designers' works from around the world that use Creative Market products. And check that out at madewithcreativemarket.com. Now, every week I'm going to give you all an update on our Patreon fundraising campaign. Right now we are at five patrons for a combined total of $23 per month. So thanks to all of you who have already pledged your support for the show. If you want to become a patron of Revision Path and get access to some great perks like early access to future episodes, um, a monthly Google Hangout with me and other Revision Path supporters, you can head on over to patreon.com forward slash revision path and make it happen. Pledge levels start at just $1, $1 a month, four quarters, 10 dimes, 20 nickels. You get the point. <laughs> uh, now, without further ado, let's get on with the interview. This week, I talked with Tracy Coleman, a freelance creative in New York City. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Tracy Coleman, and I am a freelance creative. And I don't know if that's on anybody's business card. Um, I think that I like to make up titles for myself because what I do is actually pretty varying. I've worked as associate creative director at agencies. I've been a web designer at agencies. I've been a graphic designer. I've written a lot. And so I sort of encapsulate all of that as a creative. So that's what I do. Tell me what the agency experience is like. I know that there are people that are listening. Some of them are entrepreneurs. Some of them may work in more of like a production-based environment that's not necessarily a creative firm. What's that experience been like for you? Um, It's been great. All I know is agency life. I've been in agencies for 10 years, and I've also visited tons of agencies here in New York. I mean, it's fun. I think you learn a lot about the business at an agency because you don't work for one client. And so I've worked at a large agency over the Ogilvy for quite a while. And that's where I started. So that's where I learned the business in the beginning. And so I was exposed to some, you know, pretty big clients. There we had IBM, we had Dove, we had tons of 
really large clientele to where you have to learn a lot from really great people who are working on the business. And so that's great. You learn about all the departments. You learn, you know, how the structure goes. You learn about partnerships. You learn how the creative department is supposed to be set up at a larger agency. Because at bigger agencies, you have every single position from junior graphic designer all the way up to CCO. Like there's every single, there's probably at least seven different positions between those two. And you see all that at a large agency. You see the production department, you see project management department, like there are departments for everything. And then more recently, I worked at Walton Isaacson, and that's a much smaller agency. And so it's very different. You get your hands wet, you get your hands dirty, you do a lot more stuff. You're in charge of way more projects, you have a lot more on your plate. But the cool thing is you get your stuff produced. And so what your idea is, you're not necessarily like competing against teams and teams of people for one banner ad or one print ad, whatever you think of, nine times out of 10 will get produced. So that's the cool thing about working at a smaller agency is that you learn sort of trial by fire. It's a lot of work, but it's cool to see your dreams come to life. There's great things about both, but working on the agency side, I, I just love being able to work for different kinds of clients instead of working for one sort of brand all the time. Now, Walton Isaacson and Ogilvy, those are both advertising firms, right? Yes. Now, for designers that kind of want to work in that world, what sorts of skills and things do you think they need to have in order to succeed? I found there's two paths. So I came in as a web designer with a graphic design background, and I started off internal. So my job was to make web graphics for their intranet, internal communications. And it was great. I did like flash banners. I coded my own stuff. I created like cool graphics for internal meetings and presentations and things like that. And it was very, very design based. But I also knew quickly, because I interned in an advertising sort of internship, so I knew that that's not necessarily what advertising creatives do when you move up. And so when I moved up to art direction, I quickly learned that, again, there's two paths. You can keep designing, and you'll become like you know a senior designer, and you'll be in charge for look and feel. That's your wheelhouse. That's what you do. You make it look great. The only challenge is that in ad agencies that aren't design-based there's a ceiling there. So at an RGA, for example, their designers are absolutely amazing. And there are senior level designers there because everything they do looks absolutely freaking ridiculous. Um, And a lot of other traditional advertising agencies, a designer only goes up but so high. You may have a design director in some cases, but for the most part, you know, senior designer may be about as good as you get. On the other side, designers who know how to think, who are conceptual, That's where the money is. That's where you are able to sort of break that ceiling and keep moving up to the C-suites. And so I actually chose that path, not for like the money, just for I was interested in the ideas and the different things behind the campaigns. And that sort of led me to WI, which is sort of, you know, all these out of the box thinking that was really, really cool. You wouldn't get that if your only role is to design something. And so that's the difference. And the thing is, if you if you love design at the bottom of your spirit. And I've had that. I've had designers who were awesome designers who had no desire to ever be an art director. And I encourage them to keep going as a designer because there is a firm for you that celebrates designers. Many advertising agencies are not for that. And so you have to decide for yourself whether you want to be an art director or creative director and be more conceptual and sort of allow your design team to lead the look and feel or whether you want to keep your hands dirty and keep producing beautiful work that's two different 
pass and you have to decide that for yourself. What excites you the most about design? Well, I love clean design. I love typography. Like people who know how to do great things with type is really fun to me. People who can do a full spread without a single photo, Mm -hmm. that's really awesome to me. And balance. I think that one thing, the first clue I see to poor, I guess, art direction or design is just things that are just out of balance. And I just love the conversation behind the why. Like I like asking like, why did you choose this color? Why did you choose this font? Why these two things on this side of the page? It's interesting to hear what people say and how they defend their work. And I have an eye for what looks good. And and I, I love the fact that I'm able to explain why something is wrong. Because the thing is, when you understand the why and the principles of design, which I learned in school, once you get to be a senior creative, you're able to tell the client who always has some ridiculous request for their logo or the editing or whatever, you're able to explain a concrete reason why this design does work or doesn't work. And as you progress as a designer and you're in front of clients, you need to have a why. It can't be like, I love blue or this font is pretty. Like You have to be able to say, blue is bad for food advertising because it's not something that makes you hungry. Yellow and red are actually colors that make you actually want food. And that's why most of your restaurant advertising is in those colors. Those are the things you need to know that when you need to sell your work, you have concrete reasons for your design and it's not subjective. Right. It's those things that kind of illustrate your value as a designer, not just being someone that can say, oh, like you say, I like pretty colors. You have to actually give the reasoning behind that. Exactly. How did you first get involved with design? It's interesting. I fell into it. I met a friend my senior year in college who was a studio art major. And mind you, I'm from South Carolina, so I didn't know what graphic design was. (laughs) Everybody who was an artist at my high school, I just assumed they were going to be making caricatures in the street. And I was like, I'm not about that life. I need a job. (laughs) Like My parents were like, get a job. And I'm like, okay, I'll get a job. And I was actually interested in science at the time. And so I went into, you know, pre-med biology. And after a few years, the passion just wasn't there. And I didn't notice. My my mom noticed and she was like, are you sure you want to do this? And I was like, I don't know. So I met a girl who was a studio art major my senior year. And I was at her house playing on her computer. And Photoshop was this new program back then. That's telling my age. (laughs) And... (laughs) I could not stop playing on her computer. And I was just making shapes and circles and making type and it would look horrible. And I was like, this is your major? And she was like, yeah. And I knew she made our party flyers and stuff, like come out to the party, like that's what she would do for us um, in my sorority. But I was like, wait, you can get a job doing this? She was like, yeah. And I was like, wow, this is so cool. So from there, I started digging. You know, I worked for like our school paper as a, I forgot the title back then, but I did layout in, um, for the paper. And then I found an ad agency called the Zimmerman Agency in Florida. And then I was actually in media at the time, but again, I saw what that looked like. And then from there, I just kept digging and digging, found advertising and then decided to just go back to school because I had nothing. I had zero in my entire schoolwork that resembled art anything. And so I started over and went to the Art Institute. And from there, I learned about color and balance and typography and layout and all that stuff, which was great. But if I hadn't spoken with that young lady my senior year, I may have never known that you could actually have a career from being artistic. Now, granted, if you live in a big city like New York, LA, Chicago, Miami, 
you're probably exposed to it. But if you're in a smaller place, you're probably exposed to things like there's law firms and there's doctors and there's teachers and there's engineers. And it it isn't a field that many people, especially people of color, are, are exposed to. And so I'm just thankful that I found it early. And it's something that I've loved. I've always been creative, but didn't know you could make money doing it. That's a good point that you mentioned about exposure. And I feel like now as the the conversation around diversity in the design industry is starting to become more prevalent. We're going back to that thing about when do we really expose people to design so they know that it's something that can be a viable career option. Because so much of what we do, I mean, everything that we touch pretty much has been passed through some lens or filter of design, but we may not be cognizant of that. We just kind of use the end result of it. Exactly. From what it sounds like, you sort of worked your way up the East Coast. You say you're from South Carolina. You went to college in Florida. And then you went to the Art Institute here in Atlanta. I was in Atlanta, right? yeah. I was Atlanta. Yeah, okay. And then from there up to New York. Yep. What's the design and art scene like in New York? I mean, that's probably a, a stupid question. But okay. what's it like for you? Uh, let me ask that. What's it like for you? It's been like like Disney World. Like It's like, <laughs> I mean, you get here and you're like, whoa. Like, I mean, first of all, it's visual overload just walking the streets. I mean, there's and there's two sort of levels. There's like Manhattan, which is like huge billboards and there's digital billboards. And there's like all this stuff screaming at you. But then if you get on the smaller neighborhoods and even in Brooklyn here, you see like the really cool stuff. There's like Red Bull does some really awesome installations of like artists and, and hip hop artists and stuff. And they're like, they look hand painted. There's murals and like there's tons and tons of stuff that will stimulate you and inspire you visually here, which I didn't get definitely not in South Carolina or Tallahassee. And in, even in Atlanta, you know, it's not as prevalent as you see here. Yeah. And then on top of that, the community is supported. And so from your local art studios and showings to like professional organizations, they're all here. So if you're interested in design, there's always something to do and not just advertising like there's tons of design firms there's illustration shops here there's i mean anything you would packaging the fashion industry is big here so you can get in fashion and that's a whole different track you can follow anything you want to do in design you can do it in new york is there anything or anyone that might have stopped you from kind of realizing your full potential i know you say that you met your friend the studio arts major that kind of got you into the thinking about design was there anyone that might have stopped you from saying, okay, you know what, maybe you shouldn't do this. Maybe you should stick with biology pre-med and just go from there. Everybody could have stopped me. Like, I could have stopped myself. I mean, I was lucky enough to where my parents were an issue. And that was an assumption people had that, like, oh, my gosh, you gave up a six-figure career in medicine, starting salary, to play with paint. Are you serious? You know, it was like a little bit of that. <laughs> And Uh then I dealt with that. And it was mostly older people, which is expected because they don't know, again, about the industry. But luckily, my support system was my parents. Like, they did not understand what graphic design was. They didn't know what web design was. They knew what a computer was. They're like, oh, she's working with computers. I was like, yeah, sure. Like, they they didn't get it. But they supported me. They knew I was happy. And they loved what I was. They knew I was passionate about it. So they just kind of went along with it. I questioned my own ability. was actually after I got my first job. I actually overheard my boss saying to someone else, I just started, he was telling somebody in the hallway, oh, she's really nice. She's a really sweet girl, but I'm not sure if she's going to make a good art director. And I never told him that I heard that. But And that was very, very early in my career. 
And it hurt, like, because I wanted to make a good impression. And I knew that I was, like, not the girl who'd spent, you know, her whole high school and college studying design. I didn't even know how to draw. And so it hurt. But I think that you can't let that sort of stuff stop you because, A, you can always try harder. You can always do better. There's always more time. And that could have stopped me then. That could have been like, you know what, this probably isn't for me. I was crazy for thinking I could be an artist. I'm just going to go back to science and go to med school, which I know I can do. And I didn't. And I think I'm so thankful that I didn't do that, but happy that challenges always make you better. It's interesting you mentioned that about kind of overhearing that from coworkers, because one thing that I think, especially when I talk with people for the show, is that there can sometimes be these types of little microaggressions that happen, which it can make you sort of second guess yourself, you know, in the office, in the workplace, when you're trying to really come and do your best work and do your job and there can be these little things that it can throw you off it can affect you but it sounds like you were able to really overcome that so that's a good thing yeah you can't i mean i won't lie and say it didn't affect me i I would second guess my work i would be like is this good enough i would i would compare myself to other designers in the office like it, it will do that to you that is completely normal but what you can't do is allow that to be your truth you can't say oh oh, I must not be a good designer. Oh, I must not be a good art director. Like, no, that's A, somebody's opinion. B, you may not have shown your best yet. And C, you can't let somebody else's opinion dictate your potential. And so I think that you have to take those nuggets, whether it's something you overhear or it's a bad review you get or a job you're turned down from. Like, you have to take that as like, Either that job wasn't for me or that opinion was something I needed to hear to get better. You have to use it to fuel your progress. Did you have any mentors or anyone that really kind of helped you along in your professional journey? I have a mentorship squad, like a whole crew of women. Oh, like squad? Yes, I like that. Okay. A whole crew, <laughs> yes. They are awesome. They are the most dope, awesome, supportive, and inspiring women in the business. They're at several agencies, and some are entrepreneurs, some are executives at BET, and they've been at so many different places that I would love to work. And I picked them up throughout my career. And so, I mean, I was given, you know, mentors as an intern. There's those. And then there's people I've met who've become peer mentors, people I actually intern with. A very good friend of mine is I consider her a mentor. There's people I've met in the past, say, three years that I admire their work for different things. You know, I do event planning. I met people who do that, who I think are my mentors. There's people who started their own businesses in fashion. They're also my mentors. Like, there's so many women out there that I meet with. I may only see them once a year, but I make sure to follow them, check in with them, tell them what's going on with me, hear what's going on with them. Always offer to reverse mentor. So however I can help somebody else, I do that. So one of my mentors that was official was through um, the Multicultural Advertising Internship Program. Um, her name was Shamika Brown Barbosa. And she was my mentor back when I was an intern, like many moons ago. <laughs> and... When she was looking for a job, I was able to hire her in my agency. And so that's an example of what we call reverse mentorship, where Mm -hmm. the person that's actually younger is able to help the mentor. And so I've been happy to have that sort of two-way street with her to where I I was able to bring her in, but then she was my boss. So I was able to learn from her and get stuff I wasn't getting before, now that she was there, and learn, get her knowledge as an ACD art director, and she was a creative director. And so I think that Always remember that mentorship goes two ways and that don't always look for somebody to help you. Think about who is out there I can help. And I think that the younger people who are in their 20s, you have a lot to offer. 
because people who are older, you know, you're not up on the latest, you know, mobile technology or, or the latest like apps and the latest trends and that sort of stuff that seems second nature to you. That stuff is really, really valuable in the business. And so think about what can I offer somebody before you go approach somebody for a mentorship. Reverse mentorship. I like that. Mentorship really does go both ways like that. I was just about to ask kind of how can we help bring up the next generation of designers? Like what can we pass on to them? But you sort of, you kind of already answered that. So. Well, there's, there's, I mean, there's even more ways though. And I'm trying to do better myself. Like I think what happens is we get so busy, especially in your 20s and entering your 30s, is you're trying to make a name for yourself. You're trying to get your portfolio together. You're trying to get that next job. And I think you forget to sort of reach back. So I think that what I've done in the past few years is try to get more involved with programs that do reach back. So there's Ad Color. I'm involved with that. They give awards and recognize people who are doing awesome, people of color, doing awesome things in the business and advertising specifically. I work with the internship program I mentioned. I work with them as a mentor every summer. Uh, I've taken on a mentee at a advertising high school in New York called I Am. And I'm always looking for just anything, you know, any way I can help somebody else who, whether you're in high school, college, after college, changing careers, like anything I can offer you, that's what we need to do more of. As a community, I think that we, I don't know if it's something that's encouraged, but we should probably do better because people always need help, especially when you're first starting out. I mean, if you got some help, just remember to give it when you make it to wherever you're headed. Why is diversity important? Oh, wow. How long do you have? (laughs) (laughs) You can run the beater out on this. I I really want to know. It's so it's important. So I'll keep it quick because my gut reaction is that it's two reasons. You know, the makeup of this country is changing, as everybody knows. You can't ignore it. I don't care where you live. I don't care if your city is 95 percent white. It's coming like it's changing and it's something that's a way of life now. You know, the minority is the majority. And so I think that advertising is slowly starting to reflect that. Everything from race, religion, creed, color, gender, sexual orientation, all of that, advertising is starting to reflect it, but it's taking a really, really long time. And so I think the importance of diversity is that when you have those people, those if you have a Hispanic marketing director at the agency or you have a Asian designer who's working on you know a campaign that makes sense for this target, If you have a black woman who's working on the campaign for hair for black women, she may be more able to understand the nuances behind the language that speaks to black women. And you don't end up with advertising that comes across as either inappropriate or doesn't touch them. They don't Mm -hmm. get it. Or there's so many things that can go wrong. And it's not just the big things you see that are like, they hit the news. It's like, oh my God, I can't believe they said that in the ad or that commercial was crazy. Or those things you see that are just horribly done, the retouching I've seen on things that are just like her skin is not that light. You know, just some things that sort of shock people. It's usually somebody behind it may not have been the same skin color as the model. And so I think that's why diversity is important. Not just because, oh, your campaign is reaching black people, so you need somebody black. That's not it. Because I think people of all races can do multicultural marketing. I do think, though, if you have a diverse team, a little bit of everybody on your team or at your firm or in your agency, I think you'll get better results. You'll be able to connect with whoever you're working for, whatever client that is you're designing for. You'll get better results, better messaging, better shoots, 
better artwork when your diversity at your company is reflective of the country. And I can speak for that, like for sure. I mean, it's I've seen so many mistakes, <laughs> so many mistakes and so many campaigns. And it's so obvious when the team was not diverse. It's so obvious. Like you said, the the landscape is changing. And I think that's really you know, even if, if people look at these other reasons and think, oh, well, that's not the case, X, Y, Z, I think just the getting down to brass tacks, like the country is changing, the landscape is changing. That means that the culture invariably is changing because it's reflective of society. So that's why it's important to have these diverse teams so that you can work with your kind of diverse clientele. You know, you can't have just the same types of people trying to solve problems for a huge amount of, of culturally diverse people because, like you said, there might be missteps. I think we certainly see a lot of those, particularly in advertising. We see that mm-hmm. a lot of missteps as it relates to just small cultural nuances. I'm thinking in particular, Nexus uh, has a men's line, mm-hmm. like a men's line of um, like skincare and stuff like that. And I remember they had this one ad that was called like Recivilize Yourself. Mm-hmm. And it had like a clean cut black guy and then in his hand he's like about to throw like a severed head yep. that's like a black head with an afro and a beard. And I'm, I'm looking at it. I have an afro. Like, what are you trying to say? Like, is my hair uncivilized? Like, what it is was, that about? That you was know? one of the biggest fails in advertising. It was so bad. <laughs> it was so bad. <laughs> and honestly, I was a Nexus. I mean, I had the whole line. And when I saw that ad, I stopped. It was naked. I stopped buying it. I was like, I'm not, I'm not even going to contribute my money to that. If that's how they look at me as a customer, why would I want to give them my money if that's how they think I am? I'm this person that needs to be re-civilized. Yeah, I believe that was maybe a lotion. Oh, yeah, it was like a lotion. I know that they have like this men's, yeah, like a skincare yeah, line. Skincare kind of thing. line. It was, yeah, it's stuff like that that you're like, it's obvious that, you know, the diversity is just, it's just not there. And I think that and there's layers to it. You also have to understand that just because you're black doesn't mean you bring value just because of your skin. So right. I think that what I've learned is that you have to be in tune with the insights behind the community and the interest of the community and use that as your tool to be like, hey, I know about this that this demographic is interested in. And so it's not just because, hey, I have this skin color. It's like, hey, I'm an expert in this thing over here and your target is really interested in that as well. And so it's not a skin color thing per se. It's more of an understanding of the culture, an understanding of the topic in the industry. Because if it's whether it's skincare or hair or sports or or because I know there's like a lot of Nike advertising and Sprite and all this other stuff. And and some of it's done really well. And it's obvious that the team back there is really in tune with I'll say pop culture before I even say black culture. Now, granted, they're sort of intertwined, but you can't go say, oh, I know black culture, so I know the sort of hip hop. No, it's it's intertwined. And so I think you have to know what your specialty is within black culture and use that as your sort of tool to help you to help add value to your portfolio. What advice has really kind of stuck with you the longest? Because it sounds like you've had this really interesting path, like you said, from bio to design to now, you know, kind of working in the ad agency. What advice has really kind of stuck with you throughout that journey? I think that the best advice, it's actually the best advice I've gotten is from my grandmother, and and she's not here anymore, but she told me many years ago, there's nothing too good for you. And I think that my mentors and people I do talk to about the business, 
that theme is still there. These women ask for what they are worth. They know what they deserve and they go after it and they get it. And I think that that's inspiring to me. And that's a theme that I've learned that because I tend to, that's one of my faults is that I tend to undervalue myself and tend to, it's like, oh no, it's okay. Oh, it's fine. No, it's not fine. Because people who don't necessarily have our same skin color are paid more. They get more perks. They ask for, for a lot more than we do. And that's something that I personally had to learn to do better with. And so the advice you know I've gotten from people, especially in the last few years when I've become more senior in the business, is learning to that you are worth it. You know, whatever you're doing, you have a lot to bring to the table and just own that. You know, never feel like just because there's all these people out there who are doing the same thing as you are, you're special. You know, there's something great about you and you have to be confident in your skills. And so that advice is is really great. And there's tons of nuggets I have written down somewhere that I can't remember. (laughs) But that's just the one thing that came to mind. I mean, I get so many things that I learned at these conferences and stuff. I mean, you have to just keep learning and and keep seeking out advice and and nuggets of wisdom because you never stop growing. Walk me through a typical day in your life. Oh, gosh, there's no typical day anymore. I mean, at a firm, you know, it's it's very different. And now that I'm freelancing, my typical days usually involve me behind a computer at a coffee shop or at home. And so I do a lot of different projects, but I tend to sort of, you know, move around just to get a different atmosphere. And I was like that at work, too. Like when I was at work, I would get behind my desk. I would go to a couch to work, brainstorm, take a break, go for a breather, come back, think about the idea some more, take a walk, go for lunch. Like you have to keep thinking because if you sit in one place forever, you're going to get stagnant. So I do the same thing now that I'm freelancing for myself. Um, I start off usually in the mornings with whatever is sort of I have ideas moving in my head already, I'll start with that. And so maybe it's brainstorming, maybe it's working on a deck, maybe it's thinking of ideas. I'll take a break, have some lunch, maybe go to the gym, come back. And then I'm an evening worker, actually, so I'll keep working until, I don't know, seven or eight is typical, and then call it quits. And then I also do a lot of social media work, running sort of social media businesses. I mean, that's all day, every day, all the time. So I sort of check in in the morning, you know, do some posting and sharing and that sort of stuff. And then I'll check in back in the evening and then see what's going on, what's trending, share some posts, share some things or schedule things and then call it quits. But my day is, even though I'm freelancing, it's still very long, but it's flexible. And so every day is different. So as I was doing my research, I ran across one of the personal projects that you're doing right now, which is called Curly Girl Collective. Tell me about that. Yes, Curly Girl Collective. We founded that in 2011, and it is one of my passion projects. I'm passionate about hair. I've worked in hair at both of my agencies in advertising, and I just love it. I love the natural hair, what has become a movement, which is awesome. I've been natural for 10 years myself, but watching what has happened in the past, say, four or five years has been so, so inspiring and so awesome. And I'm glad to be a part of that. So what we do with Curly Go Collective is sort of bring people together in real, actual events. You know, there's a lot of stuff goes on online with YouTube videos and blogs and that sort of stuff. What we have found is like when girls get together in a real space, the energy is unreal. And it's a combination of questions like, what did you do? What did you do? What do you use? And then there's like the love. Like, I love your hair. I love your look. I'm just just a quick compliment. I'm going to keep going. I just love what you look like. (laughs) There's like a lot of that. And that's why we work to bring people together. There's a lot of that. And then we also do projects that sort of reach back to younger girls. So when you're like a teen or a young girl, like a kid, 
the kids aren't quite as nice as adults are when it comes to hair. So terms like nappy or ugly or, you know, your hair's too short or whatever, they're just harsh. You know, it's pretty horrible. And then, so we think of projects to work with young girls. So we've done All Dolled Up, which was basically a doll drive so that little girls can get dolls that look like them and have hair like them. So that's one thing we did. We're looking to do more work in schools and programs to talk to young girls about, you know, how beautiful they are just the way they are. Your hair is gorgeous. No, it does not look like a lot of what you see on TV, but it's beautiful. And that's sort of why we do what we do is to sort of celebrate and inspire people um, to love natural beauty. And another thing that I saw from your, you know, well, really from your website as I was looking through is that you're also a pretty avid traveler. Is that right? I am. You're lucky I'm home today. (laughs) (laughs) You just got back to New York, didn't you? I just got back maybe uh, two weeks ago, Max. Like, I don't know what day it is right now. Like, I just got back. Where were you? Oh, gosh. Where was I not? This was the longest trip I've ever taken. So I went to had a layover in Abu Dhabi, which was the best layover of all time. Like, it was awesome. And then I went to India for a week with the Nomadish Travel Tribe. And that was, it was like nothing I've ever seen before. I went to the Taj Mahal. I experienced the Holy Festival of Colors. I saw poverty like I'd never seen before. But then I saw just a welcoming spirit that was refreshing. So I did that for an entire week. And then I went to South Africa from there. I went to Johannesburg and then flew over to Zambia to go to Victoria Falls, which was the best day of my entire trip was going to Victoria Falls. Took a helicopter ride over the falls, jumped off a bridge, (laughs) did so much stuff. And then I came back to South Africa and went to Cape Town, where we stayed for about four more days with a bunch of my friends who flew in. So it was about three weeks and I am literally ready to go back like right now. I'd love to find a project that would take me overseas and allow me to either work remotely or work on like a service project overseas. I would love to go back to Johannesburg because I just love it. Um, But travel is, it's a lifestyle. It's not like something I was like, oh, I think I'm going to start traveling now. It's like something I've always done, partly because I moved to New York and my family and friends from from before aren't here. So I travel home. I travel for, you know, get-togethers and weddings and all that stuff. But then New York is cold for, like, nine months of the year. And so <laughs> I'm like, okay, by, like, January 30th, you're over it. And so usually in, like, either winter or early spring, I'm out. Like, I'm done. I go to Carnival. I go to the islands. I go to Jamaica. Like, I'm like, I have to get away because you might, like, slit your wrist. It's ridiculous. Like, the snow... Yeah. This year was bananas, and so I think that's part of why I've started traveling, just to get away and be able to tolerate this city. But it's really cool to do it, and, you know, who knows? Maybe I'll find a way to merge travel and and design and and advertising all in one place. That'd be awesome. Yeah, I know that there's this really big movement now for, like, lifestyle entrepreneurs, Mm -hmm. where these are people that, you know, they travel to all these different places, and they all work remotely, Maybe they're traveling in a group of people. Maybe they're just doing it separately. But the work that they do, they're able to do it wherever they can get an internet connection. So they're not specifically tethered to any sort of geographical place. That's a big thing right now. But it's interesting because I don't see a lot of black people doing this. Whereas I do see a lot of black people, particularly black women, doing a lot of travel. Mm -hmm. Like I think about travel noir. You mentioned Abu Dhabi. I remember that was a few months ago, that whole... Mm -hmm. uh, Abu Dhabi sale where a bunch of people got in on that. <laughs> I did too. That's how I um, went. <laughs> and I see a lot of black women kind of cashing in on that that travel thing, but I don't see that kind of intersecting with the world of entrepreneurship. So I feel like 
that's an opportunity there. That's an opportunity for you to try to kind of marry those two because certainly you got the travel part down and the entrepreneurship part, I guess, kind of matching those two together is really the, I don't know if I want to say it's the challenge because people are doing it. So it, it doesn't seem like it's that difficult. Yeah, it's just some research. I mean, I know for, for other people, especially women, there's probably a bit of a barrier. I mean, then the barrier is a little bit of fear because you just don't know. Like, there's questions. You know, even if you're single, you don't have, like, you're not tied down with a family. Am I going to be safe? You know, or how can I support myself? And that sort of thing. So there's a million things that could be preventing someone from sort of, you know, I'm going to go move to Barcelona and, you know, work there for a year. Like, you can, but it takes a really, really determined spirit to do that and those ladies who do that i love that so i think that and a lot of us just not knowing what you can do or assuming that that other countries don't have the type of company you need to be able to support yourself some do and some don't but it takes a little research to figure that out and so um, that's probably where i am now was like i know i could go i mean like you said you can work on your computer anywhere that's a great thing about design is that you are not tied to anywhere you have an internet and your computer and you're great and so I think that it makes it flexible where your office can be. If my office can be on a beach somewhere, <laughs> that'd be great. But I think that I'm looking for that sort of assignment that would let me do that. You know, I think one thing, if you're in production, like video production, you know, they're able to do a lot of traveling because you're capturing content, you know, around the world. And the same thing sometimes for writers. And so for design, there must be that sort of, there's got to be a sort of area where you can sort of produce your work either locally or for back home um, without actually being in that city. It's Now that I think about it, when I hear about all these people that do this sort of lifestyle entrepreneurship travel, they are all men. Yeah. Specifically white men. I don't really see a lot of people of color or women doing it. So, And something else that you... You didn't mention, you know, aside from, you know, kind of wondering, is it safe? It's like, is the society there really open to? Because, you know, women in the United States, you know, there are still certain societal restrictions and expectations and things like that. And then when you go to other countries, it's completely different. Yeah. Yeah. It's, so it's, I think that's part of it, too. It is different. It's I mean, there's a little bit of the safety thing and it's a little bit of like, you know, can I do this as a woman over there? And then women just in general, especially black women, tend to you're. Even if you don't have your own kid, you're supporting somebody. You're supporting your mom. You're supporting your sister, your auntie. Like, somebody's depending on you back home. And so I think because the community is so connected like that, I think that that's also a reason why many of us just can't pick up and and go somewhere. I mean, you can't look down on that, whether it's financial or you have just things to take care of. It's tough. You know, it's tough for some people. I'm lucky and blessed to be able to just pick up and be like, hey, I want to spend six months over here in this country. You know, everybody can't do that. I do think a small portion of people could, but don't realize they can. And so that's something that, you know, we can work together to sort of educate people. I mean, the more I find, I'm going to tell people like, hey, well, you could do this. I have a friend in Korea right now who's there for a year um, teaching. Now I know about that program. You know, you, you have to share the information so everybody knows. Right. Are you where you wanted to be at this stage in your life? I think I'm more than where I wanted to be at this stage of my life. Like, I think my life is great. When I was, I don't know, whatever age you are in school, 20 or 22, and if you were to ask me what I'd be doing now, there's no way I could have predicted this. You know, working, you know, in this business, 
and not just like designing things like I'm planning programs and events and working with, I've worked with celebrities. I've done all kinds of stuff that I would have never imagined back when I was in school. And then having my own businesses, traveling, like this is a life that I never would have envisioned back then. So no, it's better than I thought. If you had to live somewhere else, since you've traveled to, to so many different places, where do you think you'd want to live? Johannesburg, hands down. What is it about Johannesburg that you really enjoy? It feels like me. It feels like home. And I've never said that before. You know, I've been a lot of places and I've had plenty of friends be like, I want to live in Paris. I can't wait to move. Or I want to live. And I've never, ever been anywhere where I'm like, I'm always <laughs> like, this was great, but I'm ready to go home. Like, you know? And when I went to Johannesburg in March, that was the absolute first time I've ever felt like I could stay. I could stay here. I could live here. The people felt like I was back here in Brooklyn. The vibe and the culture felt very like Brooklyn. So that's why I say it feels like home. It feels like here. But at the same time, it feels very, there. it's an African pride that's really cool to me. So it's like, it's not America and it's not trying to be America. They have their own culture, but it's really, really cool and hip and just happens to feel like my neighborhood. So I think... I want to know more. It's a big country. You know, there's so there's cities I haven't been to. I've been to Durban yeah. and other places. And so I think that I would love to go back there and find an assignment there. And, you know, maybe it's service. Maybe it's who knows? There's agencies there, too. But that's a place that felt like I could be there, not indefinitely, but for a long period of time. I interviewed a woman that's a designer there. This was wow. This I trying to remember what episode it was. It might have been it was in the 20s, like episode 28 or something like that. But her name is Lebo Hong Dichwene. And she was mentioning how for entrepreneurs that are working there, how the, the local government, she's in Johannesburg, the local government really helps out a lot in terms of if they need to try to put you someplace where you can have a business mentor or things like that. I thought that was really interesting because I don't see that type of thing here in the States where if you're a small business and you sort of partner up with a a larger business. You can work at the larger business, kind of use them as a resource. And then in turn, the larger business can pass on like smaller clients to you to work on. It's sort of like the symbiotic type of relationship. I thought that was really interesting. So that might be something to look into. Yeah, that sounds great. It's almost like a business mentorship. Yes, yeah, it's, it's exactly. It's like it's a business mentorship. That's right. And your blog, your so, <laughs> and I didn't notice this until I started doing my research. So your blog, Brooklyn Travel Addict? That's <laughs> yeah. the name of it, right? Uh-huh. I saw that it was nominated in 2011 for Best Travel Blog. Yes. For the Black Weblog Awards, which I thought was so interesting because I created the <laughs> Black Weblog Awards. Are you serious? I did, yeah. I started it in 2004. And my last year of doing it was 2010 because I sold it before I turned 30. Uh-huh. And I remember 2011 because I was sort of just sort of passing the reins on. So I hadn't really taken a look at the the nominees and things like that. And I saw you had wrote this post where you were like, thank you, your grandmother. I was like, oh my God. I can't that's hilarious. That. that was so amazing. That was amazing. Well, thanks for creating it. That's awesome. Like, I, <laughs> wow, that's so, so funny. And to me, and it's so funny I wrote that post. Every time I look back at it, I'm like, was I serious? Like, I was so excited. But it was, it was because I was new. I was like five months in the blogging game at that time. I started my blog like December 2010 because I went to Ghana and I wanted to write about it and share. And people were like, oh my God, this is great. Where are you going next? I was like, what? And oh, okay, I guess I'll keep writing. <laughs> but like, a couple months later, somebody nominated me for the, the Black Weblog Awards. I was like, oh, this is cool. And so, I mean, even though I didn't win, I went. You know, went out there, went to the awards, and went 
Oh, you went to the, the ceremony? Yep. I okay. went to the ceremony. I went to the conference. And that was my first time at any sort of blogging conference. And that introduced me to people that I actually still know and follow now. Like, I think Lovey may have been there that year. Afrobella may have been there. Renee Blewett was there from In Her Shoes. Like, there are people that were there that I didn't know at the time, but I followed since then because of the conference. And so I kind of keep up with, you know, not every year I don't check all the nominees, but I do sort of keep up with what they're doing. Um, just because whenever you have a conference like that, it brings minds together. And that's what I thought was cool. Because I learned a lot. Because, again, I was, like, brand new. And so I think it's important for things like that to keep sort of connecting, to sort of share your learnings as a blogger. Yeah, because I think that year it was in New York. No, it was in, in L.A. 20- it was in, oh, it was in L.A. In I know, I had to okay. beg you, boo. Right. I was like, can I get some money? I need to go to L.A. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I can't afford all this. It's expensive. But yeah, no, I went to L.A. and But I think since then, it's been here at least twice. Yeah, because yeah, it's um, now it's affiliated because the woman that owns it now, Gina McCauley, she's based out of Austin, Texas. And so I know she was moving it around from year to year. I think this year, it, uh, I think it's in Austin this year. I don't know if there's going to be another live ceremony Mm -hmm. but i know uh, it's interesting because now it's like it's 10 years old and it feels so weird for me to even think about that like i just created this in my bedroom like 10 years ago i didn't even know if it was going to catch on if it was going to be a thing and now 10 years later it's still yeah people are still excited about it and interested in in it so it's uh yeah there's i mean there's a blogger onika raymond i think is another travel blogger that's been around for a long time and she is speaking this year in, in texas and so there's a ton um, going on with it still. That's so awesome that you founded it, though. You just never know when you start <laughs> stuff, you know? Yeah. Where do you kind of see yourself in the next five years or so? It's 2020. So what's Tracy Coleman up to? Gosh. My hope is that I'm still happy that the businesses that I'm working with, Curly Girl Collective, you know, we have a new property called Curl Fest. It's a festival in the summer. Again, it's a baby now. You know, maybe it'll be something awesome, you know, five years from now that's people come in from out of town to go to, you know, or or with my blog, you know, maybe I am paid to eat around the world, which would be amazing, <laughs> you know? <laughs> if I could be paid to eat, like, I would never do, I would never pick up a mouse again. Like, I just want to eat. But no, if I could find ways that, what I do for a living are things I'm passionate about. And again, I'm still passionate about design. Like I obsess over color and typography. I love, I love a good layout. I just like where the industry is going with all the different things that are becoming cool in marketing, especially with millennials. So I still love that stuff too. I'm just curious to see where that's going to take me. And in five years, you know, hopefully I'm able to mesh some of this stuff together, whether it's full time at an agency or I'm, you know, still freelancing and doing stuff on my own. I just want to do what I love. That is my number one goal to do what I love because you spend too many days at work working and it shouldn't be work. You should love it. I hear that. Anything's possible, right? Anything is possible. All right. Well, just to kind of wrap things up, where can our audience find out more about you online? Where can they follow your work, follow your travels, all that? I have like a million URLs. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, My personal one is www.tracymcoleman.com. That's my professional website with my work, um, my design work, my agency work in advertising, and a few of my personal projects. And if you want to know more about my, you know, personal endeavors, there's curlygirlcollective.com and brooklyntraveladdict.com. And who knows, years from now, I may have some more. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. Well, Tracy, thank you again so much for taking time out of your day. It's palpable. I can feel this sort of 
zest, not just for design, but like the zest for life that you have. So I'm pretty sure in five years, we'll still be hearing about you. We'll be knowing about the work that you're doing. So thank you so much. I do appreciate it. No, no problem. This was awesome. Thank you for having me. And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Tracy Coleman and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Tracy and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Thanks as always to our sponsors, MailChimp, Hover, and Creative Market. When it comes to email marketing, MailChimp makes it extremely simple. They've got really great reporting and autoresponder features, and you can send 12,000 emails to 2,000 subscribers for free. No contracts, no credit card required. Check them out at MailChimp.com. Hover is the best way to buy and manage domain names, and they give you exactly what you need to get the job done. Get yourself a new domain or transfer your current domains to Hover and save 10% off your first purchase by using the promo code JUNEBUG at checkout. And lastly, there's Creative Market, which is a marketplace that sells beautiful, ready-to-use design content from thousands of independent creators from around the globe. Head over to creativemarket.com, pick up those six free goods that are available for free every Monday, and if you see something else you like, use our discount code REVISIONPATH, all one word, and save 20% off your purchase. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro is by Music Man Dre with intro audio by Yellow Speaker. The outro audio, This Is My Tape For You, is courtesy of Jimmy Square. Make sure you're subscribed to us on iTunes. Leave a rating and a review. It really helps get new listeners. I'll even read your review right here on the show. Revision Path is a 318 media project. If you like the work we're doing with the podcast and the website, then visit our new home over at Patreon. Just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge your support. Pledge levels start at just $1 and you'll get access to behind the scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.